Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. This is a big generational moment for our politics. And even if you're not a foreign policy expert, we should all develop perspectives on these issues. So it is really hard to watch what has happened. Is Vladimir Putin still a rational actor? If we're in a new unipolar world, a post-Iraq where the United States isn't actually a global boogeyman anymore, and in fact can, and I think, in my opinion, is a force for good on the global stage, that has some serious domestic political implications about how the parties organize themselves. All right, folks. Today we are excited because we have a cross-podcast episode. I went on the Realignment podcast. It's a podcast hosted by a couple of good friends of Alex and I, Marshall Kozloff and Sagar and Jetty. It's a national podcast. Basically, the podcast was created based on a thesis that there was a sort of populist realignment happening in American politics during and post the Trump era. They've since sort of walked back that conclusion or that theory, and are talking about other trends in American politics that are important, including Ukraine. If you're interested in like deep conversation that will help you build a better understanding of what's happening in Ukraine and why it matters on a global level, Marshall and Sagar both have been doing basically daily episodes over the last three weeks to explain what's happening and provide a framework for how people can think about it. And so Marshall asked me to come on the podcast and it came out on Monday, March 14th. So we are uploading this today and hopefully, you know, whenever you're listening to it, you're listening on our channel. But basically the podcast was about Ukraine and not because I'm a foreign policy expert or Marshall's a foreign policy expert, but because it's actually a really important um, it's probably the most important foreign policy event, Alex, since 9-11 for American foreign policy, I would say. And so while we don't have any direct decision-making authority, it is important for civic leaders to be engaging with these topics and trying to understand what's happening. And so that's kind of what the podcast was, exploring different theories of what this means for the future of American foreign policy and why it's so important. So Alex, I guess my question to you, you were able to listen to the podcast today. What was your reaction? Yeah, and I actually thought, and I would say, if you listen to our podcast, you should definitely check out the realignment because if you like what we're doing, you will definitely like what they're doing. One thing I think that you guys did really well is that obviously neither of you are experts on the subject, but you're actually able to talk about it, not sort of on like the very tactical level that like, oh, these specific regions are being controlled by the Russians or these are under attack or here's the Putin's next move might be. It's more sort of of how like what's going on over there, but then also how this specific crisis plays into America's role in the world, both from the left and then both from the right, but then obviously from the left, considering Joe Biden is president and also what he's done. So yeah, I thought it was a, a really interesting conversation between both of you. And the one thing I would say that I disagreed with the most, and I, I don't actually know if you said this, I know that Marshall said this, but basically the world has really rallied around the Ukrainian cause, most of it at least. Well, actually, actually, that's an even debatable point because there's so many people in Russia or in China and India which have not really rallied around the Ukraine. Marshall but, uses the phrase the free world. The free world, well, some it's, Indians, they would definitely take offense to that as the largest democracy. But anyway, but yeah, basically like this is really, I feel like the first crisis in quite some time that as like the Western world in particular is really rallied around, right? I mean, there was a lot of disagreement over the Iraq and the Afghanistan war between the US and our European allies, also our different stances to China. And that doesn't just include what Trump did. A lot of the European countries were also actually upset at some of the tariffs that Biden has kept in place too, that were put under Trump. This is really the kind of the first issue that you've seen all everybody on the same team again. Mm -hmm. And also, I frankly think that like, I totally agree with your point about importance of since 9-11. Like there's actually not been an event in I feel like my lifetime and your lifetime, Joe, I know you're just a little bit older than me, that has like really impacted us to say that like the world is actually a really scary place and that the status quo that we have today isn't just always going to remain. So I thought that that, you know, you guys made really interesting kind of like highlighting that particular point. The one point though that I would disagree with, and actually what I originally said before I went on that little tangent was that it's really easy, frankly, to be against Russia. It is a superpower. And obviously, if you're Estonia, that's a lot scarier to say than us from the United States. But like Russia really doesn't export that much besides some critical minerals, besides oil and gas. But the bigger issue is if something like this were to happen with China and Taiwan, 
that would be a much harder country to do this for because a lot of our medicine is made in China. A lot of our different parts for manufacturing are made in China. China is also a sourcer of a number of other different materials that go to other countries that finalize the goods. So that was kind of the main point. I disagreed with what you guys had talked about at the end, but I thought that the episode was really informative and really interesting too. And you frankly don't have to know that much about the conflict to actually like gain a good understanding of it from listening. So I thought you guys did a really good job of that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the, I asked Marshall the question like, and this has been on my mind and people have written about this, but will the global coalition that is united against Vladimir Putin's Russia remain intact if China takes a similar action in Taiwan? You're basically saying very little chance in your view of that coalition being as coming out as strong, as strongly in defense of Taiwan as they have in defense of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it's just gonna like people are, you know, Americans are feeling pain right now, right? I mean, gas prices are insane. The cost of everything, of course, it's like, it's not just gas though, because the cost of oil going up makes everything more expensive because things have to be transported, right? No matter if it's a globalized or relatively localized economy, everything is more expensive when the price of oil goes up. But as I was saying before, like Russia, you know, I'm not gonna talk about oil supply and demand. That would just get way too wonky and complex, but like, the amount of things that come out of China compared to what come out of Russia is just an astronomical difference. And that just frankly makes not only the cost, but also the rallying effect of anything in that standard much higher, right? Like our Germans or frankly Americans gonna put up with things being maybe 30% more expensive if we had to put the same level of sanctions on China as they do now. I don't know what the answer to that is. So it's a really tough question. That's super fair, super fair. Um, and then the last section in the podcast that you all should listen for is, Marshall and Sager have described the 2020s as a lost decade for American politics, basically because of the high level of dysfunction, the inability to pass major legislation, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have a conversation at the end where obviously like I'm running for office at the local level, you know, Alex, actually the four of us, Alex, myself, Marshall and Sager lived together in DC for a bit. I was there just for a summer, but they lived together longer and so like we all made different choices, right, about how to move forward. And I left D.C., came back to Oregon to basically work on the state and local level. So we talked a little bit about what can, you know, young people interested in politics who have ambitions, who have, you know, skills that they want to contribute, but feel like politics is broken. Where can they go? And I offer my perspective on that. And Marshall calibrates his a little bit. So I thought that was an interesting conversation, too. Titus, anything to say before we jump into the interview? Yeah, and I actually think because they're so nationalized that like they lose the advantage of what we have, which is the locality, right? And I don't even just mean talking to mayors, but like talking to people who are running for state ledge or like trying to, like you can do a lot. I mean, Oregon's budget is huge, right? Even for us being a relatively small state, like you can pass a bill, write the thing, get it done, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. And like that can have major implications for people. Which again, yeah, I mean, if you're just looking at it from a national lens, it is depressing, right? Because you're basically caught up in the Twitter and Facebook wars all the time and nothing really moves in Congress. And Republicans are probably going to sweep both chambers in 20. I would be shocked if they didn't sweep both chambers in this upcoming election. So like everything will be at a standstill again, basically. So yeah, if you're taking the national lens, I don't really think that trend will go away. But I think that sort of what we're exploring on this podcast too, that there's a lot of exciting things happening at the local level on both sides of the aisle. So yeah, maybe the cynicism is right for the national, but I think there's more hope for the local. Well said. All right, with that, if you haven't already, go check out the Realignment podcast. They're doing some really cool work and don't forget to subscribe to us. And uh, we hope you enjoy the interview. See everyone. Ben Bowman, welcome to the Realignment. Good to see you, Marshall. Good to see you too. This is uh, really interesting. I've been waiting to do an episode with you for a while and we get to do it. So for context, everyone, Ben and I have been really good friends since our University of Oregon days. I know we have a really concerted Oregon listenership, so we're really shouting you all out here right now. But Ben and I have been obsessively talking and texting about the war in Ukraine. Ben, I'll let you give context for your background, like what you're doing right now in terms of running for office. But the whole idea for this series of focusing on this issue so much for the past month has been this idea of, hey, like this is a big generational moment for our politics. And even if you're not a foreign policy expert, of which you and I are not, you and I are neither, we should all develop perspectives on these issues. So bringing you on as someone who's been listening to this series has been really great. So let's just get your introduction, then we'll just get into the back and forth. 
So the, the basics are, I, and I hope we'll talk about this. You've talked on the podcast, even pre-Ukraine, about like the toxicity of American politics. I actually, my response to national politics being broken was instead of staying in D.C., moving back to Oregon, running for local office. I'm the chair of my local school board. Now I'm running for a seat in the state legislature in Oregon. Frankly, pre two weeks ago was not very focused or cared very much about U.S. foreign policy. In fact, was like living in a post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan world where the left was pretty turned off about America as a global superpower. And what I've loved listening to on your podcast and thinking through is if we're in a new unipolar world post-Iraq where the United States isn't actually a global boogeyman anymore, and in fact can, and I think in my opinion, is a force for good on the global stage, that has some serious domestic political implications about how the parties organize themselves. So yeah, that's a little about my background and how I'm coming at this, but certainly not a foreign policy expert. Yeah, I know it's interesting. I want to start by focusing on the multipolar point here. This is something Dimitri and I really talked about in our, one of our two episodes, which is this idea of as millennials, you and I are both born in 1992. So much of our background was set by A, the 1990s. It's super great. History's over. We're all just chilling, a very uncomplicated view of the US. Then you get 20 years of September 11th, Afghanistan, Iraq. I support Afghanistan. However, that then gets complicated with every single year. Neither of us ever supported the war in Iraq. That was always a very, there's really jaded, maybe a lot of people in our cohort jaded about the US. So I'd love for you just to talk about very specifically this transition from how you were thinking about Iraq and Afghanistan and the US's role in the world and what you've just been seeing the past few weeks in Ukraine. So I feel like my political coming of age was in its own way. And I think this is true for you too, actually, but like, I started getting involved in politics in like 2006 as a like very anti-war student. Like I was very turned up, like the Bush administration was the boogeyman of the 2000s for Democrats like me. And so I think the way in which I understood the world and America's role in it was based on oversteps, failures, dishonesty from the Bush administration, which leads frankly, to a lack of critical thinking about it. Like, it, I, I honestly think that the Democratic foreign policy position um, broadly, I'm not talking about like elected leaders, I'm talking about like Democrats, the people who like are out in Oregon, who are party activists or running for local office was in large part just a, a pendulum swing response to the Bush administration. The United States should not be meddling in other countries. We keep screwing things up. We've done more harm abroad than good. Um, like, I think that that kind of encapsulates how Democrats had been feeling into like during the Obama years, almost like disengagement with foreign policy is an issue. Like, you know, Syria got complicated. Like we understood Obama's red line. And there's some of us like me who were disappointed that nothing more happened, but it wasn't an animating issue, I would say, for most Democrats. And the last two weeks feels to me, even out in Oregon, like something has changed. You're starting to see the same people who or the same people who directionally in the 2000s were super anti-war and very against U.S. intervention, who are literally tweeting about no fly zones and whether they're like in favor of it or saying, like, I understand why we can't, but I wish we could do more. There seems to be this revival of the left's understanding of America's role in the world, which is exciting to me. I, like, So I have a podcast in Oregon called the Oregon Bridge. We just had a woman who's the mayor of Beaverton on Lacey Beatty, who she's a, a veteran, was a combat medic in Iraq. And she, it was funny, she like talks about how she's a patriot and feels patriotic. Or she says she feels patriotic. But after Democrats say that they feel patriotic, they have to provide a caveat for, uh, now that's not to say we're perfect or that, you know, like, you know, I agreed with the war in Iraq. It feels like the last two weeks, like we're moving in a different direction. I don't know as much about what's happening on the right, but on the left, it does feel like the aggression of Vladimir Putin is a rallying force for the left to say we should stand up against autocracy and we could, should stand up against expansionism. We should stand up for democracies in Eastern Europe, which is exciting to me. I think like, I don't know. So that's a little, that's how I'm approaching it. And this is where it gets interesting because, and I'll get into my perspective on this in a bit because I want to keep the back and forth going, but agree with your frame, that's what's happening. Where it gets complicated, as you said, are the issues like the no-fly zone. So how do you, 
think of the issue of a no-fly zone? I mean, I, I think I agree with you in Sagar's take, which is basically that it's too dangerous. It could be disastrous. I understand why people on the left are calling for it. Like it's easy. Not I can say empathizing with the Ukrainians and like Zelensky is like a social media star and a very empathetic figure. Someone that I think people on the left are very drawn to and not just Zelensky, but like the Twitter universe. You were talking about how one of your listeners was talking about how their, their life in the last two weeks has been a series of like refreshing on Twitter because you're trying to understand what's happening. You're trying to like learn new things about an area you weren't paying super close attention to. Like you're following journalists from the Kiev Independent that you had never heard of. It is really hard to watch what is happening. Like it is really, really hard to watch hospitals being bombed, you know, like the interview, even the interviews and who even knows if they're real. Like I totally get the the point about misinformation in time of war, but the interviews with like Russian soldiers who are like, we don't know what we're doing. We didn't, we don't want to be doing this, whatever. That being said, I do think as a nuclear power, we are a superpower, even if we're not the only superpower. And as Joe Biden used to say on the campaign trail, big nations can't bluff. And I do feel like Vladimir Putin, I don't know, I'd actually be curious how you think about this question. Is Vladimir Putin still a rational actor? Because if he's a rational actor, perhaps you can make a case about, but if you think there's a chance that, you know, the last two years, something's different about him as Marco Rubio has been tweeting or that he's no longer you know, like clearly he, he's okay with massive, with basically the destruction of the Russian economy. So do I feel certain that he wouldn't escalate militarily to a confrontation with the United States? No. So I don't know. What do you, what is your take? Yeah. So the more I think about Putin and we're doing an episode on Putin's grand strategy next week. So I'll dive more into this over the weekend, but I don't think it's useful to think of leaders as crazy or not rational. Even even Kim Jong-un is behaving rationally within the framework it seems to be, which is how do I ensure the long-term existence of my regime and the existence of my, 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 my worldview? I don't think that Putin is a madman who's sitting with the nuclear button ready to press it at any single instance. I do think, though, he's getting increasingly desperate. He's backed, getting, he's backed into a corner and because he's getting older, he's clearly operating on a timeline, which has exhausted his strategic patience and his ability to operate. Okay, so this is good. It's, it's not that he is crazy, but he's now a gambler and gamblers are incredibly dangerous. Now, Hitler, I think it's pretty easy to argue, goes crazy, especially towards the end, but Hitler, up until, let's say, he loses at Stalingrad in 1943, is best described as a gambler. So he gambles that he can reoccupy the Rhineland, which the Treaty of Versailles said he couldn't gamble. And technically speaking, that could have launched a war with France and Britain if they decided to. He gambles that he could reunify with Austria, and that could have also started a war. He gambles onto the Sudetenland, then all of Czechoslovakia, Poland. France, and then he invades Russia during Operation Barbarossa. So that's just a gamble. And he finally just gambled too far. That's what I really fear. And that's what happened with Putin. Putin gambled that the West would capitulate. He gambled that Zelensky would fold and that he was all talk and that a lot of the, let's just be frank with this, a lot of the unseriousness and miscalculation he had before the crisis. Like once again, I understand why he didn't want to sow panic around an invasion, but it was a devastating mistake for him to not just say, look, I've met with Putin. This is a dangerous man. I am not, he never should have made the statement. I do not think they're going to invade. Crystal and Sagar got a lot of crap for their coverage of the Ukraine crisis. Like, let's be frank about it. Sagar's talked about this. But guess what? When they were running segments saying there won't be a war, they literally were featuring Zelensky on it. So <laughs> Putin saw that. And I think he calculated he could make this move. And the gamble is not paying off. And I think he's just continuing to gamble that I'm gambling that my nation will survive this. I'm gambling that the West will not escalate this in a way that's dangerous. And I am gambling that eventually this will work out. I think gambling is just the real danger zone for us. Okay, so I'm going to put my podcast host hat on. Um, I'm glad you used the, the World War II comparison because one of the things you've talked about that's been very interesting to me and actually like I'm starting to see potential for like the left to use as a framework for understanding and talking about foreign policy is this idea of the United States as an arsenal for democracy. 
Can you explain like what, A, where does that come from? And B, what does it mean in the contemporary context? Yeah, yeah. So we were talking about this last night when we were prepping for this episode. And then I'll throw this question back at you in terms of what your vision is. So the whole point, to be a broken record, the whole point of this series is there are huge decisions that our generation, whether you're a soon-to-be-elected official, knock on wood, like yourself, or if you're a um, discourse-setting podcaster like me, or you're a congressional staffer, no matter what, you you just because of the nature of our government, and this is why we believe in our system, it actually really matters what you think about this. And I wish, if you could go back in time, we were in fourth grade, so obviously this wouldn't happen, but imagine if we'd spent just that first month after September 11th learning what the Taliban were, learning about Saddam Hussein, learning about Desert Storm, learning about the CIA's efforts in Afghanistan, on and on and on and on, would have really redefined how we thought of the next 20 years. That's what we're trying to basically do here. So what I am trying to do this month is develop my own individual approach to how I think we should position ourselves. You're going to give your answer to this, but I also want the, we'll speak to the audience and break the fourth wall here. We want you all to come up of this month with your own version of this, because once again, nothing's empirical here. You don't have to be an expert. A lot of these are values decisions. So here's here's my conception. The US has made all sorts of terrible mistakes in the past. Iraq war, mismanagement in Afghanistan, interventions in the Cold War. We talked about this with Hal Brands, but, but bad interventions in the Cold War that were either based on mistaken theories like domino theory or were just really bad calls when it came to intervening in democracies that were a little aligned away from us. That is all true. But, and this is the real but, it's important that we acknowledge those realities, but we also just move forward with a sustainable vision because too often, and this is, I think, a trap that many Democrats have fallen into, they see this bad history and then they basically respond to it with, okay, then we can't do anything. Or, okay, if we say that Putin is bad, aren't we hypocrites because we're doing this thing with the Saudis or the Yemenis? And look, that just isn't, that, that is an option if you are in Sweden. I think that's an option if you are in Switzerland. But at the end of the day, you and I do not support a no-fly zone. But when Zelensky says very explicitly, when you do not prevent Russia from bombing our hospitals, you are making some type of moral decision. I think that's very true. So history moves forward, events happen, and I just am not going to sit on my hands. I don't think anyone, people in positions of responsibility are not going to do that in any direction. So, um, so functionally yeah. then, arsenal of democracy means what? We just continue, we basically take uh, democratic states under threat of expansion from Russia or China and funnel them weapons? Is that essentially what it means? Yeah, no, yeah, thanks. For, uh, thank you for refocusing me as a podcast host. No, this is, <laughs> this is uh, that's actually it. It's our mistake the past 20 years was just going on offense in devastatingly reckless, devastatingly hubristic ways. I think the real peak for the ideology that I'm pushing back against was George W. Bush giving his second inaugural address where he said the central aim of US foreign policy is to remake the world in a more democratic fashion. Not that we can't, I would, I would almost 99.9% .9 like to live in a world that was completely democratic and free, but there's a difference between seeing that value and then completely reorienting our entire foreign policy. And once again, when he gave that frame, it was in an offensive frame. It was, we're going to intervene here. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. In my case, because the U.S. is on the defensive post-Afghan withdrawal, and the autocracies are very explicitly on the offensive and are considering it, we have the opportunity to say, hey, whoa, we're not intervening in countries. Here's my example. What if Zelensky woke up last year and said, you know what? I think the West is doomed. I think Putin's making some good points. I think that Ukraine and Russia are actually one nation, are actually one people. I am going to make this decision as this democratically elected person to orient ourselves towards Russia. Past versions of US foreign policy would not have accepted that. I'm almost certain that's true. And my foreign policy, we would have, we would, we would have, we would have, we would have accepted that. Um, and at the end of the day, if if Zelensky wants to make a terrible deal with Putin, he gets to make a terrible deal with Putin. I don't think he's going to make a terrible deal with Putin, since Putin is saying things like, "I I believe in abolishing the Ukrainian state." Like that's his miscalculation. But under my foreign policy, nations get to determine how they orient themselves. Now, if they decide though that they want to orient themselves towards the West, if they want to be democratic, if they say, 
hey, guess what? This country is trying to take from us by territory. This country is literally questioning our existence as a people. Um, that is something the U.S. should strongly back. So once again, I don't support a no-fly zone, but I think we should basically establish an unlimited line of credit to Ukraine when it comes to Stinger missiles, when it comes to javelins, when it comes to bullets. Any force of arms that will help them resist tyranny is just really key here because the last bit here, but I'll throw this to you, is look, what, what, what is my takeaway from studying the 20th century? My takeaway is the most destructive idea the idea that literally killed hundreds of millions of people was this idea that a dictator or a country, democratic or otherwise, because the British Empire, the US, you know, we've done these things, can say, this territory is now our territory, can say, hey, you people don't actually exist. Right? I, th I think Putin, there's the, the, the word genocide is, is a really, it's, 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 a, it's a fighting word. So, and I'm not claiming that Putin's plan is to put Ukrainians in camps, you know, in a Holocaust style thing. But when Putin says, I do not believe that Ukraine exists, I do not believe that Ukrainian identity exists, like that is that is culturally genocidal. And I think that's an evil idea. And when we can, without going too far, so no NATO troops on the ground. I'm skeptical of the transfer of the MiGs. You know, this is actually one of the more debatable points of these. Um, and I'm opposed to the no-fly zone. But up to that, if you are defending someone pushing back against that genocidal idea, then F yeah, like we should support them. What's 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 your perspective? I mean, my here, this, this is like, and I think many listeners will empathize with this. Like my, so I have a day job uh, where I work for the Oregon Department of Education. I'm on a school board and I'm running for state office where I'm trying to spend time, like learning things about like the Oregon health plan and the history of like timber conflict in Oregon. So I actually don't have nearly as much time to think about this as you. So this is actually why I listen to the realignment because you spend all day <laughs> thinking and talking about this and it provides a space for me. So like, this might be a boring answer, but I actually agree with you. Um, and I, and I think, and this is why I actually, I, I agreed with your take. I, I agreed strongly with your take in the in the last episode with Sagar, where you were basically like, A, Joe Biden might be the only guy who could have beaten Donald Trump. And B, he's doing everything right. Um, so what I love about what Joe Biden has done is he has provided an example of how the United States can be an influential actor on the global stage without sending US troops abroad. Um, what remains to be seen, and this is like the depressing point where Sagar's continuing insistence that this is going to take five years or more or whatever is incredibly sad and depressing. Um, so we'll see what the outcome is. But Biden has at least presented us with an alternative view of the United States where we are active on the world stage. We're organizing a coalition um, across nations to respond um, economically and militarily. Um, but in a way that doesn't have this, the kind of arrogance that like the post 2001 US foreign policy had that made people on the left like deeply uncomfortable. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question or not. No, it does. And the key thing that comes here is it's very clear that in a multipolar world, alliances are incredibly important. And my takeaway here is it's not as if, here's the key difference in now in 2003, then the US could just, you know, for good or for ill, unilaterally declare, we're going to do this. Either you're, I mean, I'll quote George W. Bush, you're either with us or against us. It's such a cliche now, but that's, that's, that's actually what he said. It's so, very, yeah, go on. No, so actually I was going to turn it. So you should probably finish first. Yeah. So just the quick thing is now in today's world, a critical skill set for the U.S., and this is a very important role we could play because we are removed from Asia, we're removed from Europe, we're in the North American continent. It's deeply important that we conceive of ourselves as, look, we're often going to be in the driver's seat just given our economic and military power, but we still have to be much more democratic with other countries. So we have to genuinely care what Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Poland Australia, Japan, some of the members of this coalition care about because what we have to do here is this whole debate about soft power and oh, the US has a terrible reputation. We have to treat ourselves as a counterweight to what China and Russia do. We have to say very openly, like not only, because once again, and this is once again why I'm excited about this opportunity, which is that during the Cold War, the US, especially as Jim Crow was ended, was just unabashedly better than the Soviet Union. 
Um, But, but huge amounts of hypocrisy throughout that entire time. So yes, Ronald Reagan is talking about the evil empire, but we're also like funding death squads in Latin America and trading um, weapons to fund them with the Iranians. We're funding, we're funneling money into the Iran-Iraq war and really prolonging this really terrible conflict. So there's all, there's, there, we're on the side of good. It's obviously good that we won. Might not be obvious, it's obvious for me that it's good that we won that competition, but there's hypocrisy. Now we get on, on this conflict specifically. So yes, people are gonna bring up Israel policy. People are gonna bring up Yemen, Saudi Arabia. I'm speaking specifically in this context where we are competing with China and Russia. It seems as if it's becoming clear that we can do what's morally right with restraint and avoid hypocrisy. We do not have to say, well, this country we're allied with is also trying to territorially conquer another country, but we're going to say that's fine because they hate the Chinese. We don't have to have that issue right now. And that's such an opportunity. So actually, so I have a, I have a follow up question. We talked about this a little bit last night, um, but I think it's it's worth exploring a little bit. So, um, regime change was like the very hot topic, a very hot topic in um, domestic political conversations about U.S. foreign policy um, a few years ago. And so, I can imagine someone hearing your framing of oh, the United States should be an arsenal of democracy, and interpreting that as okay, anytime there's a democratic uprising against an autocratic power, whether it be South America or the Middle East or wherever, the United States is going to support regime change and we're going to support the um, uh, the folks trying to overthrow the government wherever. Is that, is that aligned with your position? And if not, where's the distinction? Yeah, I thought about this one a lot. It's, it's, a, it's a good rejoinder because it's an example. It's an example of how the idea I articulated, it's the devil's always in the detail, right? So if it's the 1940s, we agree, we're going to contain the Soviet Union, we're going to contain communism. Well, okay, like, but what happens if communism is expanding into Southeast Asia? And what happens if domino theory is correct, and the spread of communism to one country actually leads to communism in another country? So it's really, you, you, you are raising the right question, because it's forcing me to guard against the instinct which has led good policy, I think a straight containment was the correct policy. It's what ended up winning. The overreach was what caused the disaster. But how do you basically stick to it? Here's my answer. My answer is when I say arsenal of democracy, this is an organizing principle. It's a foundational idea. It is not, it is not a literal policy. So for example, there's a way of look, there's a word result make, and once again, Zelensky is not listening to this podcast, but Zelensky could listen to this episode and say, oh, Marshall, you magically are able to set US foreign policy. You say you're the arsenal of democracy, give me my MIGs then. Or Marshall, you say you're the arsenal of democracy, give me my, um, there are all sorts of, yeah, actually just focus on the MIGs in, in, in terms of the example you're giving. Zelensky could say arsenal of democracy, great, awesome. That means I need MIG fighters to shoot down Soviet um, jets and, go air to ground against Soviet um, defense and um, um, armor. Because this is a foundational principle, I can say, yeah, that just doesn't apply. Because once again, so the, the answer here is, it's, a, it's important to have a principle, it's important to have an idea, but not let that idea turn off your critical thinking skills. So for example, just because I'm saying we should defend democracy does not mean I, by definition, have to say, well, there's this revolt against, let's say, the Burmese government, or hey, there's a revolt against this other thing. We have to do it. I don't think I have to answer that. No, I have to answer your question. But my point is, I can be a critical thinker and engage on that level. It seems to me the problems really come from taking things too literally and just not remaining humble about how this actually works. I was just going to use the word humility because I think what's attractive to me about that is this the. It, it demonstrates a level of humility that I think has been lacking in U.S. foreign policy, which you're not saying we shouldn't be involved. Um, you're not saying that it doesn't matter or we shouldn't care, but you are saying that our unilateral engagement is probably a net negative thing. Um, and I think and I think you were talking about this last night, and maybe you can clarify if this isn't true. Uh, 
I think your position was basically, and you sort of alluded to this already, like if you're coming from an inherently defensive place, what you're basically saying is the current board as it is, is acceptable. But what you're guarding against is uh, basically aggression or expansion from one of the other global superpowers, Russia or China. Um, is that kind of where you're you're coming from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got a text. These are lightly edited episodes, so um, apologies. It's what it's. Uh, this is uh, my company sent over a, a birthday present, so I was trying to deal with the the door person. Um, and that can you, can you re-ask the question. Sorry. So, so basically, I was just. I think the uh, what I like about your framing is the humility um, for America's role in the world, and I think you were saying this last night, but I want to clarify. Uh, your position is basically the 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 playing field as it is is acceptable um what your your position is inherently defensive and what you're guarding against is an expansionist power a yeah. super another superpower trying to change the playing field in some way that's what you're resisting you're not proactively trying to go you know which i think you know democracy builder george w bush was trying to do actively remake the playing field you're saying okay that didn't work we're not going to do that, but what we're not going to do is allow an expansionist superpower with very different values and economic uh, uh, interest than us to do their own remaking of the playing field. That's ex- that's exactly it. And basically, the way I'd sum this up is, I'm very timeline limited here. So I am not saying that the organization of U.S. foreign policy for the rest of the century, right, the rest of our lifetimes has to be based on this idea of like maintaining the playing field as is. For the next 10 to 20 years, though, I think it really should be the organizing principle. Um, And once again, Iraq and Afghanistan go bad because Bush finds the wrong organizing principle. And the task for all of us and the task for politicians is, hey, like, how should we actually organize U.S. foreign policy in the changing world? So for for the foreseeable, for this decade, at a minimum, it has to be defense because the challenges are so huge. It has to be, hey, look, if you're looking at Taiwan, if you are looking at the example of Hong Kong, if you are looking at the example of Ukraine and the threat that Baltic countries feel, it's maintain the playing field. Don't let them expand. Don't convince Putin that he can send insurgent hybrid warriors into the Baltic states and claim that there's some sort of specific controversy with uh, Russian speakers there playing the game he's already played um, in in Ukraine. So that, that, that's my point. And also, and this is why, and we should talk about this, this is why I support the sanctions policy. I will keep saying this, I will be a broken record on this, but what was so revelatory about the episode of Nate Sibley, I'm glad I started off there, was he just actually explained the sanctions policy better than I'd actually heard it from a lot of people who are pontificating on Twitter, which is, this isn't about regime change. There's no oligarch who's going to say, okay, 55% of the people are with me, now let's do a palace coup. The point is, Russia has to learn that if you invade another country and say you're going to abolish the other country's existence, your economy will be hit catastrophically. Uh, and that's the ready. That's, that is why I'm okay with this policy. I do not. And the whole point of my defensive framework for Arsenal democracy is I am not making any judgment on the content this month or just this general approach to the world based on the idea that we're going to change Russia or change China. That was another flaw in the underlying approach to foreign policy, I think, over the Iraq, Afghanistan, post-9-11 period, which was just, it's not that you can't change things. It's not that there aren't things you should do. So, for example, like we should fund Voice of America and beam in independent, it's not independent, it's U.S. government funded, but it's very clear that Russia is now going to get turned into a hermit kingdom. We should fund news services that will talk about democracy and say, hey, this is what news is like that, 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 that is, that is what we should do. But at the same time, I think it would be a mistake and would frankly even play into the narratives of China and Russia. If we tried to say, Hey, like what we are doing is thinking, how can we offensively, not with weapons, like this, this, the point is an invasion. It's like, how do we offensively make sure that Putin is not in power? I'm just not interested in that. I think it leads to bad places. Yeah. Yeah. Then so, and and I did listen to the episode, but I'm trying to recall then. So, or maybe I'll just frame it this way. Is the point then, I mean, because I think it was that the episode where you're talking about like 
you were you're you're basically asking like um i'm you're basically like i'm angry and yeah, yeah. and he was Wait, basically so, so so it's basically saying but this is way okay this is, let me just restate this because it's an important point i'm not sure everyone's yeah. in every single episode in the series i said to nate who's a expert in kleptocracy and oligarchy and sanctions i said here's what i feel reluctant about when it comes to the sanctions because i was listening to the twitter discourse i was saying i don't believe this is going to cause regime change but i'm effing angry right now about what's happening am i just angrily kicking down doors punishing the russian people for what's happening and his point is that the right sanctions policy isn't about punishment it's not well it's about punishing putin but it's not about punishing the russian people it's not about as like for example i'm not trying to take away their ability to use apple pay on the subway right that's not what you're waking up and trying to do and it's not to say hey if we punish you enough you're gonna wake up and take out putin it's about saying this occupation this invasion costs them billions of dollars a day. How do we, given the fact that we are not going to intervene militarily beyond aid, how do we limit their ability to invade and sustain an occupation? It's already been reported that Putin has basically given up. There are indications he's given up his plan to replace Ukraine's government with a puppet government. That, that There's strong indication that's happened. That is happening because we wrecked their economy. Because he actually, and this is what we talked about in the counterinsurgency episode of Dr. David Kokolin, Russia, under the current circumstances, can actually not sustain a 10-year occupation. And because they're killing civilians every single day, I mean, Mariupol, 1,200 civilians have died already. They are such pariahs now, and Ukrainian identity is so solidified that they could not install a puppet regime or even just any regime. Let's say, let's say Putin just said, look, let's bring back the last Ukrainian president that I like, and we're just going to put him back in. And when I leave forever, it doesn't matter because he is so toxic that that regime has run out of, I, I, I guarantee you that, I guarantee you people in that regime are dead within two days. Uh, assassinations, rebellion, civil war, total disaster. This is happening because of our sanctions policy. And that is why I support the policy. I mean, so yeah, how, how do you think about it? Totally agree with all that. And then the other, um, and I wonder if this is intentional or um, or not, but I think the other important piece about sanctions policy and the important piece about how this is all unfolded with a coordinated global response is that, look, this isn't just about Ukraine and Russia. This is about what the world's going to look like in the next 10 or 20 years. It's about what's going to happen in Taiwan. Does China have an incentive to take uh, an aggressive action? I think and, and I would be interested in your take on this. If I'm China and I just witnessed what happened almost almost literally immediately um, to Russia because of what they did in Ukraine, it's probably harder now, to for me at least, to imagine a Chinese invasion of Taiwan than, any, than ever in recent, recent memory. Um, and I think sanctions policy is a really critical part of that. I think it's obviously a lot more complex with China uh, economically. Um, but I do think that, like, I don't think China or Russia, I didn't see this coming. I didn't see the, the, the coordinated unified global response happening in the way that it did. And I think it's really exciting about what we can do as Western democratic nations or nations aligned with those values um, moving forward. And this is, and once again, this is the key thing. And I'm glad you set it up this way because you hinted at this, but it's true. Let's get real for a second. There is going to be much more corporate difficulty when it comes to any serious sanctions policy on China. So we're going to do an episode on this. I'm not going to just hand wave away the fact that the instinct is not going to be as easy. The point is, though, Putin's intervention and the Chinese thought of the West, but not just the West, but when I talk about West, I'm including Japan, I'm including in some ways the Philippines, I'm including, it's not just the West, but it's just this, and this is what's so interesting. Like we, we, we actually need like more language because it's, it's like, okay. once again, like we're, we're, we're operationally allied of Vietnam right now. Um, South Korea is there, Japan's there. Um, Shinzo Abe is talking about how like, he wants US nukes placed in Japan, which on 15 different levels is incredible. Um, that, that's, a, that's, that's an actual realignment of how we're thinking about this. So what I basically mean, let's just actually, no. Okay, this is good because I want to talk about this. 
this is the first time in my entire life that saying the words, the free world, isn't a meaningless cliche. Interesting. Because the actual answer to what, because, okay, Vietnam and Philippines, super complicated, but everyone else I mentioned is a, is a, is a democratic self-determined state. Like this actually is the free world against autocracy. So yes. Yeah, so let me just for now, and obviously people will come up with a better word than this. And that term makes me think of like Ronald Reagan and jelly beans, but there's something, but, <laughs> but actually, but this is how much of a strategic disaster this was on Putin's part. He, he set the debate within these terms by him doing this the way he, and this is why we were talking about this last night. We can never think of Putin as a master strategist again, or right. you know what really is? Putin is good at, you know, he's a martial artist. I think the way I would articulate my understanding of Putin is that he is really excellent at um, judo, right? So he's good at when I punch, he can redirect my weight in a, in a devastating way. So when we invade Iraq or when we overpromise when it comes to NATO admission to Ukraine, well, for our ability to enforce that, he can take that energy and use it to his own advantage and get what he wants. What he is cruelly bad at is he's terrible at soft power. He's terrible at articulating his case. He's terrible at actually just making strategic decisions. And the point then to take this back to China is, here's what I'm thinking is China. A, the chances that US, the US and Japan would push back against an invasion of Taiwan has just gone up, um, has just entirely gone up. Um, and the chance of economic sanctions has also gone up severely. So once again, I would not, I probably wouldn't bet, I would not bet any, I would not take a bet that China would be as crippled and cut off yeah. as Russia would be. But that being said, the chances of that happening has gone up. So that plays in this, again, this is, it's gambling, it's risk calculation. The risk has gone up. And if you're China, you're also thinking, and once again, this is the world I want to live in. Because this is actually good. What world do I want to live in? I want to. I want to give you, hear your answer. To this. The world I want to live in is a world where, look, China. I get it. I, I actually genuinely do. People, you know, like Marl, you're you're a China, you know, you're a China hawk. You hate the CCP. I, I genuinely understand where China is coming from. I understand why China wants to unify Taiwan with the mainland. Right. If I were if I were Chinese, I would be. I would, I'd be a nationalist. I'd be a you know card carrying party member. I would want, I would want to avenge the century of humiliate, humiliation. Um, I entirely get that, but the way that that should be achieved in my world is China. Be awesome. If if because this is what the Chinese and the CCP and this is what Putin believes. Like they actually believe that the West and the free democratic world are decadent, divided, weak. They're the way of the past. If that is true, then be patient. And naturally, if that is the word you think is real, then Ukraine would go towards you. Then Taiwan would go towards you. If the what I here's what I want the CCP to take away from the 2020s. Once again, this 10-year period. I want the takeaway to be if we want Taiwan to rejoin the mainland by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the uh, Chinese Communist Party seizing power and winning the Chinese Civil War. We have to convince them that we're not going to put people in camps. We have to make clear that we're going to pull back our repression in Hong Kong, because once again, they're never going to give up Hong Kong. That's not my claim. But there was a wide consensus that Hong Kong and Taiwan have different relationships with the Chinese government than mainland China. So they have to make clear that, hey, look, if you're Taiwanese, you're still going to be part of China, but let's get real for a second. You are going to have a slightly different, more probably democratic relationship with your territory than you would in mainland China. That has to be what the deal has to be. You're going to have degrees of freedom. Maybe social credit scores don't exist in Taiwan, right? Like that would, but that's how you would win. That, that, that's what they have to be convinced of. And I think that's what our policy should be, should be about encouraging. It should be if the Chinese want Taiwan, the Taiwanese have to democratically decide they want that. And our policy has to encourage China to advance its own justified interests in this case, aka the desire to unify territory they see as Chinese through soft power and through peace, not through aggression. So let, let me ask you a question that I've been thinking about, and I have no idea. How, I, I really have no idea what the answer is on this. 
and maybe maybe it's unclear still. So the free world, as uh, you've described it, unified immediately in response to and, co- and coordinated economic actions in a devastating way. How convinced are you that that coalition holds in China? If a similar, I mean, obviously the devil is in the details. Who knows what? Who who like? But directionally speaking, do you believe that the free world is as aligned uh, in favor of defending and supporting Taiwan as they have been in Ukraine? Yeah, it's interesting. Look. No one expected the Germans were going to go as hard as they did when it came to the sanctions and cutting off Nord Stream 2. So before this conflict, I would have said, honestly, probably not, because they have such tight economic ties with China, and there's just no reason to expect that a European, that an EU, if it doesn't spend any money on its defense, broadly speaking, and that also is just this time that they would never make that sacrifice. I think, I think this has really changed a bit. Mm-hmm. And this is, once again, a huge strategic miscalculation. My... My takeaway, let me make a prediction here if it won't be verified until 2102. Hopefully we're still alive then. (laughs) But here's what I think is going to happen. History books will will have that picture of Putin and Xi before the invasion started and say, this is one of the biggest strategic miscalculations of the 21st century. And here's what the miscalculation was. If you're Putin and you're, and if you're, if you're here's a strategic calculus. If you're China and if you're Russia, here's what you want. What you want is these are internal issues. This is why Putin wrote that big essay last July. This is why he gave a speech where he said, "Russia and Ukraine, we are the same people." This is a myth of history that we're not the same people. This is an inter-Russian, inter-Slavic debate. Mind your own business. That is the point. If you're China, you want to make the argument that look. This isn't literal. And by the way, this case is much stronger on the Chinese side than the Russian side, that the, the, the Taiwanese and the Chinese are actually the same people, that Taiwanese identity is not is, is much closer to Chinese. It, it's a stronger case. This is a geographic specific issue, but has nothing to do with you, Estonia. So just back off. Because they took that picture, because it's now widely acknowledge that they coordinated and that she specifically asked Putin to wait until after the Olympics to launch his attack. This is now a global struggle. These are, these are, these are inherently tied together. The worse that Russia does on the battlefield, the less likely the Chinese are to make moves. I think that tie together moves this towards Europe being aggressive. Um, I think that's just the underlying reality because it just, because they have just done such a horrible job. And like, cause then I went, cause we're, we're nearing like our last segment here. So I want to get to the, the whole politics bit, but just to finish yep. up this conversation, I really want people to think of it because I haven't heard this response to this. They just could not have set this up better in terms of becoming the aggressor, coordinating with another country, which also is thinking about being aggressive. Right. And then Having Biden, once again, people are, are mad in the comments for saying I'm a, I'm a Biden show. Like, look, I'll call it like I see it at a strategic level saying, whoa, whoa. Like, for example, there's debate about a lot of military folks who say it was a huge mistake to say we won't put in NATO troops. And I understand the military case they're making. Militarily, you want to increase the uncertainty for Putin that if he's a gambler, hmm, man, they could intervene. And obviously, I would be okay using a tactical nuclear weapon on the battlefield. But like, I don't really want to do that. So increase his thing. But politically, it was a necessary thing to say because it just meant, whoa, we're defensive. You know, we're, we're, whoa, whoa, whoa. We just want Ukraine to be free and determine its fate. We're not trying to start a war here. Mm-hmm. Um, so once again, this is what I'm noticing a lot of outside commentators, especially European hawks who don't understand the American political system, who don't understand the awkward coalitions Biden, Biden's working with, not get that, guys, the reason why center left to left people are so comfortable with supplying Ukraine right now is that all of Putin's attempts to turn this into the US is the one at fault here completely failed. And Biden achieved this and his staff achieved this by just not by, by taking things just off the table. 100%. 100%. All right. Take us into our last segment. So, so I, I will take us into the last segment by, um, offering a critique that I have of how you and Sagar 
have framed politics, which is you basically, you started with something I agree with, which is our politics are very broken or at least very toxic, particularly at the national level. Um, and I know you've had, you've had listeners write in basically like, what should I do? Like, what does, what does an ambitious millennial or even Gen Z person do? And I think your response has basically been like, stay away from politics, like don't engage, go do something else. And my response is you actually should engage in politics and maybe you shouldn't engage on the national level, but like for a couple of reasons, one is, I mean, and, 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 and the Russia Ukraine situation actually brings this into a sharp focus, which is if you are patriotic and you actually believe in a pluralistic democracy and our ability to solve problems, we kind of have to prove it. And we're not going to prove it by smart people being like, I don't want to be involved in politics and government. Um, so, so A, I actually do genuinely believe that. But B, and this is like self-justification for the path that I've chosen, you actually can, can do a lot and solve a lot of problems if you engage at the state and local level. Um, especially, I mean, every state's different, but in a state like Oregon, it is not it is, there is not a huge barrier to entry to actually being part of this um, and having a seat at the table. And again, you're not going to be meaningfully impacting what's happening in Ukraine, but you're probably not meaningfully impacting what's happening in Ukraine and your status quo, but you actually can have a huge input in solving a problem, problem like housing or homelessness or healthcare access or um, you know, cl climate change policy at the local level, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's my critique, and I want to hear your response. Yeah, you brought this up on the pre-call last night, and I've been thinking a lot about this. A couple of broad thoughts. So A, I'm going to immediately modify the cynical take I had. I, I agree with certain parts of it, but it needs to be, you are basically getting at my, my critique needs to be much more precise. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks who write in are saying things like, I want to enact a populist revolution and completely shift American politics and also pass universal health care and do this, 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 and that. I actually think for people with that grand visions right now, I, I'm actually not someone who discourages grand visions, right? I spent an episode as a 30-year-old, I'll be 30 when this episode comes out, proclaiming my views on U.S. grand strategy and foreign policy. So I'm not going to be here yeah. and say, who, who are you kids to talk about universal health care? What I will say, though, is I am ultra aware of how the current political system at the federal level especially takes people with that grandiose vision, which is often needed and is important, and chews them up and spits them out and ruins this. Like This was the subtext of my episode of AOC, that I'll just state more clearly because I'm not, because I'm more being interviewed here. My problem with AOC, some people wrote in about this. They basically said, like, wait, like, is Marshall just kind of like a lib? Because it doesn't <laughs> sound like it doesn't sound like he hates AOC. It actually sounds like he's pissed at AOC. And actually, I am pissed at AOC. Yeah. I'm disappointed that given AOC's talent, which she actually has, I know right-wing part of members of the audience, she actually has talent. And that talent is just being wasted on hyperpolarizing the climate change issue and the Green New Deal, making it toxic. It's not going to pass in this decade. Um, and then B, getting into scum bucket fights with Ted Cruz. That is, that, is, that is what happens in the current political system. So what I would say, given your point is, I would modify my critique and say, look, like, guess what? State politics, local politics, city politics, this decade, that energy should be directed towards something like that. And something I will consider and actually will admit because I've actually, your framing has actually been helpful because what I actually think about now is, you know, if, if I were back in Oregon, Oregon as a part-time legislature, I think I would totally run for state legislature. Um, and I wouldn't hate that. So let me put it this way, like people, right? Because, you know, I was, uh, I was super political in high school. People never believe me when I say this, but like, I actually no joke, would never run for Congress if you, no way, just just no no effing way. I've, I've seen too much. I've, I was in this. <laughs> um, this isn't the typical, like, everything's corrupt and they're passing. No, it's, it's not that. It's actually just like, you send me to Congress. I am just having a miserable time. Nothing I want to pass. I, right now, I actually would like to be in Congress because of the Ukraine issue, because I think my perspective is an important one. But with the exception of this specific two-week period, 
and this month period would not want to do it. Um, I would, I would, I, I, it would be, it would be really great to be a school board member or a city councilman or a state representative. Um, wouldn't want to be a governor, um, to be honest, but I, I do think that, that there, I've, I've been so jaded by federal politics that I've actually let, I've left people with nowhere to go. And that's the most important part of your critique, which is that there actually has to be somewhere to go. And then one other thing I'll quickly say, people in independent media like me need to be careful when we say cynical things. Because when we say things like, and look, Sagar's not here, but I'll, I'll say this critique, right? I'm doing breaking points content right now. And I have to acknowledge the fact that, hey, like saying everything's like screwed and everyone's going against you, like that's actually promoting that cynicism is exactly the sort of cynicism that like Putin and she want. Um, and also my version of this is, thanks to what you're saying here, Ben, and I really mean this genuinely, I do not want the takeaway from the show to be politics sucks and you're either a narcissist or a chump if you engage in it. And I think that is a fair takeaway from what I'm saying. And, and what I will also say is like, you don't have to run for local office if that's not your thing. But what I would say, if you, like, I, I like how, how you all frame like decades. Like what are the next 10 years? Like you say things like, you know, it's done for the next 10 years. You know what you should do for the next 10 years? And we talked about this a little bit. You should figure out how to solve a complex problem. Whether it be the state or local or local level, um, if you think you can do something at the national level, there are some avenues that exist if you have the resources to do that. But like get good at solving problems, get good at building coalitions, get good at understanding nuance, um, like develop those skill sets so that you can do something with it if and when there is a realignment, if and when there is a shift in the way that our political landscape looks. But like the answer is not for smart people to all retreat to the private sector to make money. That cannot be the answer. And I think you're agreeing with that. Um, it's not as clear as it used to be in like the 1950s, where if you were like a civically oriented person, you, you were Mark Hatfield, you ran for state house, then state senate, then secretary of state, then governor, then senator. Like it's more complex now. But I think the most important thing is like develop a skill set um, to solve problems. Like that's what a civic minded person should do right now. And to pick up another point we made last night, we should have, we should have recorded that because I think we should hear this organically develop. If you do want to run for office, even federally, I think it's very important that you be very realistic and pragmatic about like the problems you're trying to solve. So once again, doing the podcast has helped me get there, but the reason why I felt the urge, and I'm not going to, I live in New York City, like I've been away from Oregon for a while, I'm not going to run for office, but the reason why for the first time in like four or five years, I felt the urge to be a politician is, oh, the US is figuring out its, its Ukraine policy. Millennial politicians are literally absent. Or no one knows joking, how to talk or, about it. Or, or they're effing Adam Kinzinger who feels the need, <laughs> Adam Kinzinger and Eric Swalwell who feel the need to go down sinking with the ship and just be completely just not helpful. I've said, hmm, here's the problem I see. I see that on both sides of the aisle, and yeah, and in Madison Cawthorn's calling Zelensky a woke thug. Really that's disgusting. A fun, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fun combination. I'm very, very interested in the, <laughs> Zelensky kicks the door down and says, listen up, there's now LGBTQ story hour. <laughs> You know, <laughs> shut up, Russian speaker. I, that's I, I the love type it. of thug we can all get behind. <laughs> yeah, that's how we'll close it out. But no, it's it's serious. Like I, I've I've wanted to, I actually want to like in a, in my head I want to be a congressman because I'm like oh like I would love to be in Congress right now and articulate what our policy should be at a time when a lot of people have absented themselves in the field. So just rooting yourself in that huge. So we've got like 30 seconds left, Ben. We'd love to hear your, your, your sum up, like what you're thinking and where, where, where you're, as we're finishing out this month, where do you think we should go next? Or you personally too? Uh, good question. Big question. Um, I'm excited to keep listening to you and Sagar have these conversations because it's super helpful for me. Um, <clears throat> I do think that the left and the Democratic Party needs to do exactly what you are, address the weakness that you just described, which is we need to figure out what is our worldview in a post-Ukraine world. Uh, and we need, able to, need to be able to talk about it uh, in a way that is values-based and inspiring to people. And I think like there actually is a strong case to be made in a lot of the language you, you've used as part of that. Uh, and then for me, like 
like I'm excited about potentially being in the state legislature and like doing what basically living what I just said. Like I'm not going to be engaging deeply on Ukraine. I'm going to be like refreshing the Twitter feed and listening to the podcast and reading the New York Times. But like I am going to be deeply engaged on education policy. I am going to be deeply engaged on healthcare policy and housing policy. Uh, and like actually trying to figure out how to solve problems at the state level, um, if I'm fortunate enough to have that chance. So yeah, and I'm gonna keep having my podcast plug. If you if you are one of the Oregon listeners of the realignment, you should also listen to the Oregon Bridge. It's a podcast where me and uh, Marshall and I's mutual friend Alex Titus, uh, former Trump administration alum, we have a cross partisan podcast. It's not super debatey, um, but it's like trying to do what the realignment is doing in some ways at a state and local level, um, which is, was Marshall's advice to me was to start this podcast. And uh, it's been super helpful and interesting. So that's what I'm going to do. All right. I've got another interview for this series. So we're going to cut this here, but Ben, this has been really great. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us on the show. See ya. Bye.